I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm co-host Cal Rastiala, and I'm pleased to have back on the podcast for, for a second appearance. He appeared about a year ago. Uh, Gianluca Berti, who uh, is a professor at the Graduate Institute in Geneva uh, and the former legal counsel of the WHO, the World Health Organization. So someone who really is steeped in issues around global health and the uh, many myriad legal questions uh, that surround that. And so we're we're really pleased to have Gianluca back. Welcome, Gianluca. Thank you. Yeah. And so what I thought we would do now, uh, a year plus into the pandemic, I thought it might be useful to talk about a couple of things as we, as we hopefully begin the exit process back mm-hmm. to normal world. Uh, it certainly feels that way here in California, and I think in some other parts of the world, though I recognize many, many places are still deeply in it. Um, A couple of things have started to uh, arise on the legal landscape that I think are worth addressing. And one of those is this notion that we need a new treaty through the auspices or under the auspices of WHO, a pandemic treaty, as it's been called. And so, Gianluca, I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about the notion of the pandemic treaty, and then we can we can dig into it a bit. Sure, and many thanks for inviting me again, Carl. It's good to be back. Um, so the idea came uh, largely from the European Council, uh, from Charles Michel, the president of the Council, uh, and so was embraced by the Director General of WHO. Has uh, gathered quite, I would say, about twenty-five to thirty uh, proponents. Uh, it was discussed last week at the Health Assembly, so the plenary body WHO just concluded its session totally online, but they really pulled it off. And the decision was to uh, wait to have a pause for reflection until November, because it was, it was pushed too much. It was really shoved down the throat of many states that either saw it as a European uh, motivation, you know, with something hidden behind, or we're not convinced uh, by this proposal. So the, the 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 proposal has been remarkably vague in terms of content. Uh, the rationale that we saw was basically uh, the COVID destabilized uh, the, the, the so much of international governance and that the international health regulations that are supposed to be the main instrument for uh, preventing and control these kind of events have proved um, ineffective. In particular, compliance has been uneven. There are uh, not much in terms of enforceability. And so the rationale presented was that we need a treaty, we need the new instruments first, almost like signaling a level of commitment by governments that evidently the IHR did not get. Uh, and second, to uh, fill a number of voids. And the main voids are upstream, in particular, the management of the zoonotic risk, because most of the bad diseases in the last 20 years have come from animals. And downstream, in particular, when it comes to this very vexed question of um, research and development, manufacturing and distribution of what we call uh, medical countermeasures, so uh, therapeutics, vaccine, and and so on. Uh, Plus, uh, 
an argument that we need the treaty to strengthen the international health regulation, which I personally found a bit counterintuitive because in the IHR are weak. Why don't we revise the IHR? Why do we need to put a treaty on top of them? But this argument has been has been presented. So again, uh, the WHA just kicked the can down the road. There will be a working group of member states that will meet two or three times between now and November and to hopefully get more clarity about the content and the purpose and in November to decide whether or not to want to move ahead with, with negotiating the treaty. Terrific, terrific. That's really interesting and it raises obviously a number of questions about what the best path forward would be. Just to clarify for listeners, so the existing framework, the IHR, is that a legally binding framework? Yes, it is. It is a bit like, say, a European Union regulation or a Security Council resolution. So it's not a treaty, but it's an instrument based on the WHO constitution. Uh, it's a, like a parliamentary act, kind of unilateral act by the World Health Assembly, the plenary body. But there's no doubt that it's legally binding. But again, there's a, almost like a perception that there's something missing, that is binding but it needs a treaty. A treaty somehow has a, almost like a higher normative level in international law, which, of course, formally, I think, is questionable. But this, this, this perception, including among top political leaders, is quite pervasive. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, yeah, we can dig into that. That's a, a sort of pet peeve of mine. But, uh, okay. but, but just to focus on the pandemic treaty proposal for a second, is the notion that... I mean, I guess I could imagine an argument, maybe a stronger argument, that what we need is, in fact, a non-binding set of ground rules or something more in a soft law vein, even though I personally query whether soft law is a concept we should be talking about. Uh, I think that I could see an argument for a non-binding or otherwise more flexible instrument rather than a treaty process, uh, given for a couple of reasons. One, it's hard to achieve, and I, I think history proves that. Uh, and two, pandemics seem to be so different, and this is really your area of expertise and not mine, but it seems like if we looked back over the last few examples, um, you know, let's say going back to SARS or MERS or various Ebola, et cetera, they all have such distinct uh, processes, uh, both medically and politically, and uh, in terms of their geographic scope and so forth. This one's obviously very different. Um, and a treaty feels like it would lack some of the flexibility that we might actually need. So I'm curious whether that's part of the debate and whether you think it ought to be part of the debate. It is part of the debate uh, because there have been a number of sort of high level reviews of what happened during COVID uh, by a number of think tanks or sort of expert bodies revolving around WHO. And some of them uh, have proposed, besides the treaty, also so have basically said a treaty is not enough. It's, it's uh, necessary but not sufficient. And WHO is perceived too much as a technical agency without the political gravitas, let's say, for example, of the United Nations. And so they have also advocated for a either like a political declaration by the UN, as you said, like setting ground rules of a political nature, or even 
um, adopting a kind of more elaborate framework. And the precedent that people cite is the Sendai framework on disaster risk reduction with its own review process, follow-up mechanism. So not just a one-shot declaration, but it's something that uh, then is followed up in time. And I totally agree. I think that there's been almost like an obsession of this idea of the treaty. And probably we do need it for a number of reasons, but it's not enough, again, because... COVID has really destabilized so much of international governance that it's a dangerous illusion to think that a treaty is a magic bullet. And so I do believe that we need that kind of UN uh, involvement that until now, frankly, has been missing. The General Assembly has adopted relatively weak resolution. Security Council has been missing in action. Um, so that there is need for different, I think, for a package approach where different organizations take the lead on different aspects of what to do before the next pandemic, basically, in terms of preparedness, resilience, response, and most importantly, also funding, because uh, these cannot be left to the pharmaceutical market. It, it, it requires a, a strong uh, public investment, and it's not a foregone conclusion uh, that there will be political will for that. So I, I, really, I really believe that you need this kind of menu approach, a package with different parts. That seems to make sense. So realizing or, or recognizing that this is still early, if we were to kind of cast a skeptical eye at the treaty proposal, uh, what's the best defense for it? What would it actually do differently than what we see now? I think that, um, first of all, I, I repeat that I found counterintuitive the idea that if you want to strengthen international health regulation, you adopt the treaty, you put it on top of it. I, I, nobody has really explained in detail what the rationale for the proposal is. I think that the treaty uh, should address a few blind spots. And to me, and uh, I co-authored co a, a comment that was published about a month ago on The Lancet, one of the blind spots is prevention of the zoonotic spillover. Most of the bad, bad epidemics have been all of animal origins, in particular jumping from wildlife to humans. And that to me is the blind spot because the sort of health law, like the IHR, start downstream. So they assume that there will be a disease and then all the focus is about containing. And uh, environmental law, say the CITES Convention of Biodiversity, is more upstream. So I think there is a need to map and regulate uh, the zoonotic hotspots in countries. Obviously, you will never eliminate it entirely, but you can reduce the risk and you can have like uh, uniform global standards of what needs to be done uh, to reduce the risk of zoonotic spillover. And that to me is a blind spot. And if we don't fix that, we are just sitting ducks waiting for the next pandemic. And then downstream, the idea of somehow regulating better the, um, the funding and the coordination in research and development, manufacturing, uh, equitable allocation of vaccines and so on is very tempting. Uh, but it will be immensely difficult because it goes against a strenuous opposition of the pharmaceutical industry. There are so many moving parts. It's something that cannot wait until there is a new pandemic, something that requires systemic changes in the way the pharmaceutical market works. So it's very tempting in terms of equity, in terms of um, sustainability of, of future governance. But I think politically it will be a huge challenge. That to me will be two defining 
uh, elements on which a treaty would be beneficial. Interesting. And just to clarify, the treaty proposal as it currently stands would be uh, occurring within WHO, not sitting aside or on top, let's say, via a, a central UN process. No, until now, there has been no no competing proposals. So it has been, been kind of timid. So it's all focused about the WHO treaty, which also raises its own challenges, starting with the mandate. Because if you start regulating environmental risks, you wonder whether WHO has even a constitutional mandate to do it. It's not enough to invoke the mantra of pandemics uh, to fix the politics um, that may sort of also to align different communities like environmental and so on that may accept to be somehow subsumed within WHO. And this has also not really been seriously discussed until then. Uh, but the focus has been very much on the WHO treaty. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, also, I can't ignore the fact that WHO has obviously come under some scrutiny uh, for its, uh, you know, its actions or some of its inactions during this this particular pandemic. But even in the past, I think it's fair to say that there was periods in which states or at least certain states seemed resistant to housing some issues within WHO that might normally appear there. The creation of UNAIDS maybe could be seen as an example, uh, the Global Fund, etc. So, you know, I'm curious about the ability of WHO to be seen, broadly seen outside of Europe, as the right place for this. Yeah, you hear, of course, you heard a lot of criticism last year about WHO having been too complacent with China, having been too slow, and, and so on and so forth. And some, some of the criticism is definitely justified. Um, at the same time, uh, so the IHR, the, the, the health regulation in that sense, have been seen almost like a constraining factor uh, because they formalize uh, the action of WHO. Uh, they make it much more dependent and reliant on states that are not always willing to, to play the game. Look at China last year. Uh, the resources have been an issue. WHO is chronically underfunded. It is um, very dysfunctionally funded uh, at the tune of more than 80% with voluntary contribution, which is most definitely not the way to run an emergency program. So there are many factors that can explain also some of the weaknesses of WHO. Also, WHO is really... Uh, populated by technical people, by really very sort of public health epistemic community. They feel uncomfortable in, in politics, uh, not necessarily conversant with international law. There's a handful of lawyers in WHO. So it's also, if you want, the corporate culture of WHO that, that can explain some of, of the dysfunctionalities of the past and also of last year. And I think we like to change. Uh, if you have this level of ambition of a future emergency manager with a treaty behind it and so on. But I mean, having worked 18 years in WHO, I must say I have some bias in favor of, uh, of the organization. And it has done also very good things last year, and they had to be recognized. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, it does seem like WHO has a does have a culture that, I mean, even on messaging issues, I mean, this is getting a bit off topic, but it 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 you know, it has come under criticism simply for the way it couched some of its messaging, which from a kind of scientific or technical point of view made sense, framing things in terms of null hypotheses, rather than saying, and this is also true of CDC and others, it's not unique to WHO, but not doing a fantastic job of, of allowing the public to really understand what was going on. The deeper issues are the political ones. And, and since you raised China and raised the 
the issue of kind of jumping from animals, I just want to see your view on this. I mean, I think as you know, certainly here in the States, and I imagine elsewhere, in the last few weeks, a lot of discussion over the question of whether is this actually a pandemic that that jumped from animals or, or was it possibly leaked out of a lab? And that seems like the sort of thing, whether it's true or not, that WHO would have a very difficult time digging into. Um, so I'm just curious, what is there any international process that could get at causes like that in a systematic way to really dig in? And is WHO the best that we have for that? Yeah, um, I think, frankly, at least in this case, it's a bit of a, of a lost cause. Uh, because China is fiercely determined to close the book on this. Uh, so this issue resurfaced quite a lot and maybe unexpected last year at a health assembly. Country after country stated that this study by joint study, by the way, by WHO and, and, and China, uh, basically it was inconclusive, not credible. We need another um, study, a real scientific study with full access to all information. This is not a blame game but we need to know where this virus came from. Otherwise, how can we start planning for the next pandemic and so on? All valid arguments, I think. Sorry, yeah, I'm from home, I'm at home and you can hear the background noises. And uh, the, but there's no way to pressure China. And frankly, you haven't seen that level of pressure, politically, political pressure coming on that. What well, part of the conversation recently have been to give almost inspection power to WHO, but I doubt that it will be political will. And also people have made a parallel with what happened, say, with the nuclear inspection or the, the chemical weapons convention, but it's a totally different environment. It's disarmament, it's arms control, but also it's a different kind of situation. Inspectors go in in agreement with the country. These are not challenge inspections like Security Council. Um, they know what to inspect. It's like an accounting exercise. In, in the field of health, it's totally different. So I, I, I hope we can see uh, an improvement on this. But I think on China, I do, I'm not very optimistic. The Chinese have been very clear that uh, the study in, was definitive, it has totally disculpated them. Uh, the lab theory is totally unlikely. And I think the Chinese will rely on that to try to close the book. Yeah, that's, that, seems, that seems right so far, though. Though, as you point out, there is enormous skepticism about China's credibility on this. Whether, whether or not the lab leak hypothesis is, is accurate, um, China doesn't engender a lot of confidence in its answers early on and its activities internally certain, certainly added to that. Let me pivot to two other things in the time we have left. So, you know, one, I'm just curious, I, I want to talk about vaccine aspects uh, of the pandemic. And there's really two, I mean, one is vaccine passports and some of the legal issues. But the other is, I'm just curious whether as part of the pandemic treaty that we started off talking about, there's been much consideration about a better system for developing and distributing vaccines. And I say that fully recognizing that the development of vaccines was really miraculous. Uh, and I think everyone involved should be applauded. But the fact remains that, that developing vaccines is difficult, expensive, concentrated in the North, and distribution has been very, very uneven. Um, so has that been part of the debate? Should it be part of the debate? It is definitely part of the debate, in particular from developing countries that are clearly at the receiving end of this. And the European and other 
uh, developed countries make sympathetic noises that this has to change and so on. But there's a lot of skepticism. So as you know, the proposal to waive intellectual property rights that is sort of pending in WTO has been more or less blocked by the Europeans. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm when the US supported it. So that path seems going nowhere. And it's a very complex situation uh, from many perspectives. First, because there is a chronic undercapacity. Uh, vaccination and is not a profitable part of the pharmaceutical industry. So there are relatively few companies in few countries, mostly developed, but not only. The, the largest manufacturer of vaccine is India, uh, the Serum Institute and other big companies. But they largely produce for export more than the foreign their own market. So there is an undersupply, there is a untapped capacity because we have a number of middle-income countries in various uh, parts of the world that could very well uh, produce vaccine if they had the technology and capacity, capacity building. And, and then the, obviously there is all the distortions of the pharmaceutical market that is first come for serve. And the inability of countries that have done billions of dollars with no questions asked in the pocket of Pfizer, uh, Oxford University, AstraZeneca, and so on, without asking much in return, if not on a bilateral basis. So you sell to me first. So the whole thing has been, frankly, very dysfunctional. But if you if you put yourself in the in the in the in the shoes of a prime minister, it's not so illogical and illegitimate to try to protect your own people first. So I think there will be a lot of uh, really a, a paradigm shift in, in building a system where countries that have resources uh, for hoarding vaccine will voluntarily exercise self-restraint, basically, on the, on the assumption that spreading vaccine equitably around the world is a better solution than vaccinating my people first, and then we'll see. So it's an incredibly complex um, uh, discussion, but it definitely has been part of the conversation at the Health Assembly and in many other, uh, in many other venues. And is there any collaboration with uh, WIPO around any of the IP issues that may stand in the way of wider distribution? WIPO is um, also sort of a, cultivates this image of a technical agency. Of course, it's its own politics with a development agenda, with traditional knowledge, but fundamentally is a manager of IP. So the real action is in WTO. Um, with this India-South Africa proposal and all the uh, controversies around it, in particular number of countries, but also the industry pushing back saying IP is not the problem. The problem is the lack of, lack of, of manufacturing capacity and so on. But why? So there is a quite a regular cooperation, at least at the secretariat level, between WHO, WTO and WIPO, uh, precisely to avoid this kind of divide and rule attitude of many countries. But in this situation, I think WIPO has been kind of marginal because they don't see it as a role to step in into this kind of political discussion. WTO has been at the forefront, also thanks to the new director general that has been quite vocal. Hmm. Interesting. So... Given that so many people are beginning to be vaccinated in, in let's say, the, the global north, and we're seeing some discussion about, we already have this in certain places of kind of forms of vaccine passports or indicators or, or IDs of some kind, um, is this also part of the debate in WHO right now? And are there any legal barriers to having an internationally recognized vaccine passport? 
Yeah, this is very much a work in progress. WHO more than once has recommended against having like individual countries go their own ways and so on. Um, and, and here, obviously, you have a lot of pressure because it is seen as a shortcut to restart the economy, to restart tourism, to have people travel again and so on. And that, I think, is legitimate and understandable. At the same time, uh, there's no, at the moment, I don't see any sort of universally accepted standards in the making. So the European Union is coming out with those green digital paths, Switzerland, which is surrounded by the European Union, is developing something else. And so countries are going a bit in a, in a, in a, in a disparate order. Also, there are many uncertainties that um, you know, should, should pause people to reflect uh, before committing themselves totally to vaccine passports. For example, the, the uncertainties. We don't know how much the immunity is lasting. Until now, we know it lasting for six months because the mass vaccination has been going on more or less in the last six, seven, eight months, but we don't know how long you will be immune thanks to the vaccine. Also, what about the variants? Uh, we don't have any guarantee that the current vaccine will protect us uh, on them. We don't have enough science whether a vaccinated person can still spread the virus, maybe not having the symptoms, but be an asymptomatic carrier. So there is a huge amount of uncertainty and limited knowledge that in a way, it makes it be questionable to really be so certain and so absolute on the on the vaccine passports. And then obviously, the, if you want human rights, discrimination, equity arguments, as long as people don't have access to vaccine, obviously you create a two-speed society um, with a sort of privileged class based on a, almost like an involuntary criterion of having had access to, to vaccine. Um, discrimination between countries, for example, for international travel and so on. Uh, questions of privacy, because obviously you need co to collect and store data if you have digital systems and so on. Um, so it's, it's, it's a work in progress. Probably we'll get there somehow. But right now it seems a bit of a random process and I'm not very comfortable with what is happening. And how would you distinguish, those are all reasonable objections. Uh, how would you distinguish it from, I, I recall carrying, and maybe people still do, these, I think it's a yellow fever card, yeah, yeah. sort of a yellow piece of paper, and it had various vaccinations. Um, that was, I thought, required by many places and maybe still yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, so how do we distinguish that? Can we raise all the objections you just made to that process or what's different about it? No, you're right, Cal. And uh, that, that's actually uh, the main precedent. Uh, and that's actually regulated in the international health regulation, um, the uh, yellow fever vaccination. Um, so there are countries like India, for example, that requires yellow fever vaccination if you come from certain African countries because the vector is endemic in those countries and so on. So we do have precedents, um, but they are somehow limited uh, to specific diseases that are only endemic in certain countries um, to be able to, to, to travel into, into certain other country. So there's no universality there. And so the, the magnitude of the impact is, is much, much lower. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, in, in conceptual terms, you could say that we have precedence and it's not so different. It's more a matter of scale than something fundamentally new. Uh, is it simply the level of uncertainty, the lack of access to, uh, to a vaccine for too many people, the fact
fact that this is a pandemic, so it's a whole world, is not a few countries protecting themselves from a disease endemic in a few other countries. So the difference in scale to me creates also deep, qualitatively different problems and maybe also legal considerations. Well, Gianluca, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate you coming on and sharing you know, your, your experience and your thoughts on all of these issues. I imagine uh, in six months, uh, things will be different, but we may not be out of the woods, and we may, we may need to revisit some of these. And I hope if we do, you'll come back on the podcast. With pleasure. Okay, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Same to you, Carl. Thank you for inviting me.